speaking of casting charm person, if you want to support the show and charm us, the easiest way to do that is does that work? Does that joke work? That joke doesn't Yes. <laughs> oh good. The minute isn't up yet. <laughs> Live from the Mundangerous Apotheosis Chamber in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 65 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about how to create customized epic destinies for your players to fulfill. But first, the party tries its hand at suicide prevention in the Morning Glory campaign. And later, the psychic warrior wields mind and metal in the character creation forge. Before we get there, a new Unearthed Arcana came out this month that's been kicking around for a couple weeks. Alternatives to Encounter Math. Um, I hate it. (laughs) Because you hate Encounter Math? I hate the Encounter Math in 5th edition, yes. And this doesn't really do anything to fix the math that's off base. No, it's, it's weird. So it's basically an alternative to Encounter Building, but it works the same way. You determine how many monsters you want them to fight and then you pick the monsters based on cr Mm -hmm. which is fine the math doesn't look any better than it is in the dmg so i don't know what changed there they seem to have separated between solo creatures and non-solo creatures not a tag that's actually in the monster manual though so you'll have to decipher that on your own in their defense this is something that we've talked about on multiple occasions before one cr doesn't really make any sense it's maybe not arbitrarily assigned but they don't necessarily match up you can't gauge a lot based on cr and if you're gonna use a single creature you know one with probably legendary actions maybe a lair uh, against a party of four to six players it really needs to be pretty strong to actually stand a chance simply because of action economy yeah but my big problem here is that this still isn't how i design encounters Right? Don't you pick the monster you want to fight first and then figure out how to make an encounter around it? Because that's what I always do. And then I either I look at the monster manual and I reskin something to make that monster, or I just pick the monster and then like ramp it up or down, depending on how strong my party is. Yeah, exactly. It's like, hey, cool, we're finally at high enough level that I can face giants. Awesome, you're going to face giants now. The math doesn't matter. So I wish they had done something in that regard that actually reflects how people build encounters. Uh, one thing they did add at the very end, the last step, is is complications, and they've got tables for monster personality and monster relationships and those sorts of things. I think that's kind of cool. That's a nice little twist to add. Yeah. Given the issues that we have with encounter math in general and how this fix doesn't really fix anything, it does, though, make me more excited for Volo's Guide, which is coming out. It's basically a new monster manual, simply because what I've seen of it so far... There are multiple kinds of monsters that already exist, but at varying CRs. So lower level beholders, for example. I am really looking forward to more theme type of campaigns and fights, right? Where you're fighting the same family of monster across multiple levels. Yeah, you're not stuck facing a particular kind of monster at only one tier, unless you have a GM who is comfortable enough with the behind-the-scenes math to actually pump up a creature to make it a viable threat at higher levels. Yeah. So let's move on to the Morning Glory campaign. This was our three-year 5th edition game that we've been recapping since episode 4, and now we're finally winding down. I believe the party is level 19 and three in-game days away from what they believe is going to be the end of the world. I mean... Unless we stop it. Uh, oh, yeah, you think that might happen? <laughs> I, I mean, I know I'm going to try. <laughs> so at this point, the party has infiltrated Flamekeep, the capital city of Thrain, which is the home of the Silver Flame, a deific force that they know has been infiltrated by one of the fiendish overlords, Belshalor. They have Belshalor's true name in a prophetic apparatus that they believe will enable them to kill him or at least make him mortal once they confront him and then actually be able to fight him on equal terms right but they also know that belshalor is currently gathering his forces and the elements of creation and now what he needs is a piece of eberron in the form of a 
powerful dragon-marked being, Arandis Vol, who is currently masquerading as the False Keeper of the Flame. The party has a prophecy about a half-elf creature committing suicide, and they're here to stop her from killing herself because she's a half-elf, half-dragon. So that's what happens. (laughs) (laughs) We were previously in the chambers of one of the Inquisitors who turned out to be the Proctu, the Rakshasa servant of Belshalor. We had gathered a bunch of intel about what was happening, and now it was time to go do that. Right, they knew that Arandisval was about to undergo a ritual to allow Belshalor to absorb her power. They knew that it was happening here in the castle in Flamekeep, and as far as they knew, no one else knew that they were there, so they had the element of surprise on their side. The only decision they really had to make was they knew that the real Keeper of the Flame, Jayla Darren, was currently being kept in the Stone Ward, which is a place where very dangerous prisoners are petrified and then sort of locked away in a deep part of the dungeon so that they don't need to be dealt with. Yeah, so we could try and break her out and see if she could help us confront Arandis Vole, or we could just go straight to Arandis Vole and hope to interrupt this ritual before it completes. Given the amount of time that the party actually had before they thought the ritual would be complete, they said, sorry, Jayla. Yeah, you'll keep. <laughs> you'll be fine. You're the you're the flame keeper. <laughs> the party, if you haven't guessed by now, isn't particularly subtle in general. Whoa, so, whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on. The party as a whole. Okay. <laughs> One of us has been silently funding a secret war against the false keeper. That is true. Other members of your party yell and punch things. That is also true. So we did try to sneak. Brand was able to get costumes for everybody, trying to have them pose as members of the temple guards who would be in this part of the castle of Flamekeep. As we headed down into the chamber that we knew contained the flame itself. Right, because Brand is very familiar with this castle. This is where he was an inquisitor for years. Right. And that didn't work. I mean, it's a very big castle, so you guys did an excellent job. It's just at some point, someone was going to notice, why are these six people, one of whom is a Warforged, actually a really big Warforged at this point. Yeah, a very big Warforged. <laughs> walking around and heading toward uh, the chamber where the Silver Flame is. I don't understand. Maybe I should question them. Oh, they've murdered me. Also, to be fair... The thing we murdered was actually a fiend in disguise, so it's yeah, not like well, we killed any loyal devotees of the Silver Flame. Well, you found that out after you killed him. <laughs> well, right. <laughs> and then we felt less bad. At that point, all bets were off. The party said, well, I mean, if these are just fiends, especially Brand, right? Oh, I don't want to kill my fellow Inquisitors. Never oh, mind. Yeah, no. Uh, weapons hot. Right. <laughs> we're going in loud. Battle ensued. Yeah, unfortunately, we arrived... With the ritual already in progress. So I remember there were acolytes surrounding the flame, and there was Arandis Vole sort of in the center conducting things. There was also Jayla Darren, who at the time was still stunned. So we did the only thing you could ever do in a ritual, in which you're sacrificing the living in order to power the dead. We killed everyone. (laughs) (laughs) And promptly watched their souls get sucked in. That was your MO, basically. So the party said, um, I don't know, how do you end an evil ritual? Should we make skill checks? No, I think we should just stab people. (laughs) (laughs) I think it was probably fireball. That's right. (laughs) So many acolytes died that day. Dark acolytes. It was effective. Arandis Vol, for the most part, avoided all of you, used uh, Jaylee Darren as a shield, and actually unpetrified her so that you would be more concerned about accidentally killing Jayla. As you were closing in, she completed the ritual by taking a small disjunction bomb, which you'd seen before, popping it into her mouth, and then promptly exploding. It just sort of undid all the magic binding her body together, and she collapsed into a pile of dust and bone. And then her soul got sucked right into that little silver flame. And we'll find out what happens next, next week. So this is a good time for us to talk about Epic Destinies because it ties in well with where we are in the Morning Glory campaign. We're level 19. Most of us are multi-class characters. We've all got our class. We have our background. But now we kind of 
we have grown into much more than just level 20, right? So what is an epic destiny? Why did you create this for us? It's actually one of the things that I really loved about 4th edition was that there were three tiers of play, heroic, paragon, and then epic, which went from level 21 to level 30. It was part of the core game. And I really liked that there weren't a whole lot of heavy mechanics involved, but there were really flavorful abilities and really powerful iconic abilities that really helped to define what was happening to your character and where they were going to go once the story had actually ended. Now, in 5th edition, you only go to level 20 and there aren't any epic levels yet. So I sort of needed to append it to the upper levels of the game. And I think this is something that you can do in virtually any kind of RPG. It's certainly not restricted to 5th edition D&D. Yeah, it's kind of building your epilogue into the final few levels of the character. Right. So from a story perspective, the hero of legend gains a divine spark or the mystic finally ascends to become this being of light. A master thief steals the pyramids of Giza and no one knows where in the world she is. These are all things that happen in stories and sometimes happen in the stories that we tell around the table. And in television game shows. Occasionally. PC games, maybe. Sometimes they're called epic destinies. In certain games, they're prestige classes, paragon paths, advanced classes, like whatever they are. They're a set of additional abilities that get appended onto a character, usually near the end of a long-term campaign. And creating them from scratch rather than having them already written in a source book and then selected by a player, when you create them from scratch, you can highly customize them targeted toward the kinds of abilities and the kinds of decisions and flavor that an individual PC and that an individual player have made over the course of an entire character's life. Okay, but if it's just story stuff, why do we need to give them more abilities? You don't, really, but it's more fun to. <laughs> right, because it's still a role-playing <laughs> game. Right. <laughs> it, it's a lot more work, obviously, than sort of selecting a bunch of high-level classes that are listed in a source book that you bought, but Ultimately, it's a lot more rewarding and lets you really tie in the mechanics of the game to the story that you're trying to tell and the in-game rewards that you can also offer. It also really gives a character the opportunity to define their own endgame. You know, what are their goals? What is their destiny if they have one? Or what does their epilogue look like once this story is actually done? Because you really do want to involve the players in helping to create or make decisions about the kind of epic destiny that their character is ultimately bestowed with. And of course, it doesn't have to be about raw power, although that is an easy way to signify that a character has made a lot of progress from their early beginnings. You can use epic destinies to just do things like bestow titles or like flavor abilities that sometimes fall by the wayside in a lot of systems that are really mechanically focused. An epic destiny might have really extreme story consequences more than it has mechanical consequences. You mean like Grand Confessor of the Silver Flame? <laughs> Where have I heard that before? Yeah. <laughs> huh. I think sort of the most obvious one that people use a lot is, is Demigod. Yeah. You have a character who either you know has some sort of divine spark or is descended from someone or really just has progressed so much in power over the course of a campaign that you know they are close to ascending to godhood and so sort of the later part of their arc the last few levels or you know the last few thousand xp before the game is going to end they begin to gain divine abilities for whatever reason that you and your player decide and you know maybe finally by the end if they survive they ascend to godhood and this is all about mapping out the progress at the end of the game so that it sort of makes sense mechanically and so all of the reward doesn't just sort of fall in the player's lap in the like 10 minute epilogue at the end of like a five-year campaign yeah i think that's the main benefit of starting earlier than the last level is just that you actually get to enjoy the abilities mm -hmm. and you get to play with them a little bit before you put your character on your shelf yeah like what does it actually mean in game to be a demigod like hercules and to actually have that kind of supernatural strength so another thing that you can do because it's it's another layer of mechanics is you can help fix power discrepancies mm -hmm. so when you've got that group of a power gamer and a method actor and those sorts of things right and you can see that in that final fight certain characters are going to outshine you can 
ramp up the power level or, or ramp up their ability to take over other pillars using an epic destiny. Yeah, you can really sort of even out the abilities of the party without taking anything away from someone else. You know, you just sort of give one person maybe something that's a bit more powerful or that fills in the flaws of a particular build. Or, you know, if you've already got a strong combat-focused build, give flavor abilities Mm -hmm. that flesh out the narrative aspects of that character. Right, or abilities that broaden their capabilities. If you have a combat monster, maybe you end up giving them abilities that make them more useful in social situations. Right. The other thing you can do, and this is a, a bit more extensive, is you can use it to fix your own issues with game mechanics. It's it's so, it's too late for that, right? It's the <laughs> end of the game. Why fix it now? Because it can make your life easier depending on how long these last few levels or sessions are going to take you, right? It, it also increases the number of options. Think about how many times you're playing a game and... One of the characters was going to be like a powerful wrestler, but grappling sucks. It's just awful and no one wants to do it. You can't grapple past size large. (laughs) (laughs) Or, you know, it's a set of like nine opposed roles for whatever reason, because every system likes to make it ridiculous. You can have an ability that just says there are no opposed roles. You win them all. Make one or two, and that will determine whether or not you have successfully grappled something. Also, the size doesn't matter. Yeah, And now suddenly you have an entire subsystem that works great with just one basically ribbon ability. Right. We should clarify ribbon is the term that D&D 5E designers use to connote uh, an ability that is really mostly flavor and doesn't really have a huge mechanical impact. Well, I mean, that's a good thing to understand before you design. What are some other things that are important to keep in mind when you're designing these things? You're not building a homebrew class from scratch, which really frees you up because there's a a lot less that you can screw up. These epic destinies don't need to be balanced against whatever content already exists in the game that you're currently playing. They just need to be balanced against each other. Yeah, so if your PCs end up, you know, at level 18, they have the capabilities of level 21. You just up the difficulty of the encounters. Yeah. Right. It's not a big deal. These are also things you should probably only introduce in the final arc of your campaign. At the end of a campaign and in the end of character development, you have far fewer options for the players to try and take advantage of the things you've created. Mm. Right. You're pretty much locked into your choices by level 17. No one is really hanging on what that last few levels are going to be. Right, like which feet do I take? Yeah, uh... yeah. No one cares anymore. <laughs> you you knew what that was going in, right? Yeah, and in five E specifically, like you made your subclass choice at level three, right? So it's unlikely that you're vastly going to alter the direction of a character because of options that you're giving in an epic destiny, right? In a mechanical sense, but in a flavor sense, in game and in the story, this is an opportunity for your players to make very important decisions. Yeah, and you need the player on board 100% with the epic destiny you create for them. Not necessarily with the mechanics, but with the theme. Yeah, a character really should be embracing this destiny. Otherwise, it's it's just sort of another set of obstacles or challenges in the story that you've created. The point of this is to allow a player to make concrete decisions about the direction that their character takes in the end. And this should go without saying, but don't do this for just one character. (laughs) Like let the whole party each have their, their own destiny. Yeah. It's really nice to present multiple options for destinies to each player for their character, but I wouldn't design all of them first. Yeah, no, but it's like, here are some major themes that I've noticed with your character. Mm -hmm. Which one is your epilogue, right? Which one do you play up in spades? Right, the final sort of character-defining decision that you're going to make. Which direction is that going to be in? Yeah. And then the other thing is you want to stagger the abilities over the course of a few levels. And you want to limit the number of new abilities per level because you have to kind of learn new stuff as a player. For example, in Morning Glory, the Epic Destinies that I built had abilities from level 17 to 20. They had one or two things that each character got at each of those levels and even at that point as a player i still screwed up one of the abilities i totally forgot that i got use magic device as part of my epic destiny when we were playing around with 
Merrick's DeCannon's signet ring. So let's talk about actually designing them. What's the first step? You're going to need to figure out which destinies you're going to actually design. So pick two to three options for each player, but all you really need is like a cool name and like one sentence description so that if they ask, well, I don't know, what is that? You can give them the, the quick elevator pitch. Yeah, and you want to do this from the perspective of the character, right? So what are the decisions that character has made? What are the goals of the player? What would the culmination of their story arc look like? It's probably something that you've been doing for every character that you play in other games. And you've probably been thinking about it for the players in the game that you're running as well. You know, what possible directions could they go and what kinds of things do I need to keep in mind when I'm putting together the storyline of the game? You know, like what are they interested in? You can really tap into what you know about the people at the table and the characters that they've been playing and the you know moral quandaries that you've been presenting these players and the way that they've been responding to them over this long campaign. So speaking of long campaigns, we have six players. Why don't we talk about the options that each of our characters had in the Morning Glory campaign? I presented everyone two or three. Over the course of like a week, we picked based on the name alone. (laughs) And maybe a little bit of information about like, oh, I think it'll probably go in this direction, but like we'll talk about it. So for Brand, the one I totally thought that you were going to take initially, and it's the only Epic Destiny that I actually fully designed and like wrote out that didn't end up getting used because I was so sure you were going to take this Uh was Gold Dragon Ascendant. So like basically turning into a, a half gold dragon. Yeah, so the option was Gold Dragon Ascendant, the Grand Confessor of the Silver Flame. The Head Inquisitor. Or Archmage. Which was much more generic, but I, I figured there was the opportunity for Bran to really delve into his like sorcery and like magic casting ability. It, it didn't seem like he was probably going to do that, but I wanted it to be an option. Right, because, because Bran was the dragon sorcerer mm-hmm. in the group, and then also an Inquisitor. So as a high-level caster, as a partial dragon ancestor and as a member of the inquisition of the silver flame those are kind of the three defining features of brand mm-hmm. actually say now that i think about it even if you don't end up designing epic destinies this is a great exercise when you're nearing the end of a campaign to really figure out what kind of story points you need to hit for each of these characters because the act of brand or the act of shane saying no, not Gold Dragon Ascendant, I want Grand Confessor of the Silver Flame, told me that you as a player were much more invested in Brand having an active hand in what happened to Thrain, in dealing with the Keeper of the Flame, than necessarily sort of digging into the Traveler and you know him masquerading as Sybaris and all of that information. Right. So then Kallik, who of course was our paladin, soldier turned paladin, right? right? For him, the choice was really, was he going to continue to be a man of combat or a man of faith? But he was always going to be a warrior. So everything had to have a martial bent to it. So the options I gave him were Sword Saint, basically uh, Miyamoto Musashi, like um, combat capable but uh, centered and meditative in combat versus Warmaster, a, a great leader of men. And then we had Lou, our warlock. I also gave her the option of Archmage because, of course, you know, she could decide to double down on her magic capabilities. I wouldn't have allowed two people to take the same epic destiny, but I, it wouldn't have been something I need. I would need to enforce. Like with this particular group, I knew that you guys wouldn't want to overlap with each other. Right. So Lou's whole deal, right, was that she was always looking for knowledge about Dalkir. Mm-hmm. And that she believed that she was a descendant of Dalkir. Right, right, a creepy aberration that like warps flesh. Right. So her options were philosopher of flesh <laughs> and lore master <laughs> because she was constantly looking for more information. Right. She was also the sage, right? She was the one who was always going to the library. I mean, with a name like philosopher of flesh, like, of course, she chose that one. Right. Oh, and Calic Pick Sword Saint. Yeah. Which I, I thought he might, but if he, if he didn't want to go like the pious route, Warmaster was an option, but piety it was. Emery was a little tougher to 
figure out what direction she could go in. And this is sort of been a, a theme with Emery, right? Like, what are the potential options for her future? So I offered her Archmage as well because she was she was actually the only level twenty caster. Yeah, yeah exactly. She was the most powerful of the ninth level casters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she got ninth level spells before any of you did. Mm-hmm. So Archmage was was an option. I also offered her Arcane Archer because that's an archetype that I've always loved. And so I thought it'd be really fun to build, but also she had like a really powerful bow. She was always focused on on that. And, you know, maybe she wanted to stick spells in in her arrows, but she didn't want that. No, (laughs) you also offered her fiend slayer. Yeah. And her whole background (laughs) was that her soul was sold to fiends by her parents. (laughs) So she was going to even a score. It was interesting that she did select this. I thought she might, but it signified that she was open to really getting her hands dirty. Like I made it very clear to her, this was going to be very combat focused. This was, you're going to kill things. You're going to kill fiends, but you're going to be better at killing everything. Right. And she had two very combat focused ones because as a bard, she was probably the least optimized for between her spell selection and her combat capabilities. Yeah. I think it was like level 12 before she realized she had an extra attack right (laughs) (laughs) then Bahar who was the rogue from House Madani the inquisitive house the the watchers of Mm -hmm. the dragon marked houses you offered three options we talked about this in the character arcs episode Bahar's character decisions were always based around was he going to become more involved with his house or was he going to continue to divest himself from it And so I offered him options that either had to do with his house or didn't. He could go Spy Master, which oversaw the espionage efforts of House Madani. He could go Master Inquisitive, which had nothing to do with his house and was basically like a high-level Sherlock Holmes, which is one of the uh, iconic professions of Eberron. Or he could go Madani Prophet, which also had to do with the house, but is in the house but not really of it sits off to the side uh, and really focuses not so much on intrigue but their prophetic fortune telling abilities and he ended up picking that one which i was surprised about but ultimately really happy with yeah i think that one was totally the player going oh that sounds really cool i'll have that (laughs) telling the future yeah (laughs) i could totally work that into bahar's character yeah that's fine And then Bastion, this is the outlier. Uh, I only offered Cameron Warforged Dreadnought. And this is because he had been single-minded in his entire 20 levels (laughs) of what he was going to do. (laughs) He was going to become the biggest, baddest Warforged possible. Yeah. Did he want to become more like the fleshy humanoids? No. Nope. More like a big construct with no feelings? Yeah. Yes. Did he intend to have any type of persuasive or leadership abilities <laughs> for the people that he intended to inspire? No, he just wanted to kill anything that stood in his way. In retrospect, though, I should have offered him another option, even if I knew he wasn't going to take it. Because later he, he did say, oh, I really, you know, I wanted to be able to make a meaningful choice. So I should have just offered him something that I knew he wouldn't want. So he could then say, oh, well, no, I, I choose dreadnought rather than well you're a dreadnought right i would have gone with reforged which is basically oh you lose all of your heavy armor and you develop feelings <laughs> <laughs> and you get fleshy bits and he would have been like oh no no uh double down right okay so you've come up with a theme for mm. each of the epic destinies and you've worked with the players to come up with the thematic and narrative direction of it How do you go about actually creating the Epic Destinies? I think this is the most fun part is just doing all the brainstorming. Within the game system that you're building these Epic Destinies in, you really need to just kind of drill down and figure out what your available options are. Just browse every possible ability that you could potentially stick into an Epic Destiny. You're looking for cool and fun things that your players have either been asking about uh, or they've been complaining about, right? You want to potentially fix problems. So look at abilities from the classes that aren't covered by anyone in the party. Or look at abilities from the subclasses that weren't taken by characters who still took that class. You know, So if you've got an assassin rogue, you might want to look at what the arcane trickster is capable of doing. 
keep in mind the scale here, right? You don't want to give the hunter ranger just the beastmaster <laughs> animal <laughs> companion, right? Like there should still be meaningful choice. It's just a right. splash, right? In D&D, you can look at the capabilities of high-level spells. And, you know, it's actually very common for an ability to just be to get a spell, right? You cast a spell once per day, twice per day, at will, something like that. Yeah, you can also look at monster abilities. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially some of the humanoid monsters have very interactive kind of thing. I know gnolls have an ability where they're designed around a group of them working together. You can take some of those ideas out and pull those into Epic Destinies as well. Yeah, even if it doesn't seem like it'll fit the theme, the gnolls have, uh, I think, pack tactics. They work really well together in a group, but the mechanics of that ability can definitely be reflavored into, you know, a noble warlord's ability. Right. And I think monster abilities are sort of the most fun to dig into because they're the ones that typically break the rules. Right. When the designers are creating monster abilities, they're not thinking, okay, how is this going to work if a PC has it? Right. But these epic destinies, they can get really unique because you're giving abilities that can't be found anywhere else in the game to your players. Yeah, and things like abilities that work on recharge are Mm -hmm. great for this. Mm -hmm. You can make them once per long rest, right? So just once per day kind of thing. That scales them back quite a bit. (laughs) And of course, it's really useful to look at monsters if some of the epic destinies you're building are your characters turning into kinds of monsters right yeah if you become a beholder (laughs) you become a dragon (laughs) oh maybe i should give them a breath weapon right Uh, you can also look at outside games so 5e is super easy to look at third edition and Mm -hmm. 3.5 because they're relatively similar just slightly different math but yeah i mean you can even look at ideas from totally different genres if you wanted to yeah or even you know if you're playing a star wars game any kind of sci-fi will give you ideas that then can be modeled with bits of mechanics that you have from all different parts of the game yeah the one thing you want to be careful of is you don't want to step on the toes of other players Mm -hmm. so don't blend one character into another character's niche if you can avoid it yeah i think this is one of the big benefits to customizing each of these epic destinies for each of your players if there were just a book listing destinies to slap onto a character you would need to be careful about people selecting things that really muddles the territory of the party so there's a great example of that in morning glory because brand was sort of a roguelike character Mm -hmm. in that He was very focused on manipulation, very focused on not so much actually sneaking around, but sort of social sneakiness, right? Very much a spy or a mastermind, really. And we had an actual rogue in the party Mm -hmm. in Bihar. So you gave me some rogue abilities, but you didn't ever give me an ability that Bihar already had. Right. So, for example, use magic device as a mid-level thief archetype ability. Bahar was never going to get that because Mm -hmm. Bahar was an assassin rogue. So by giving me that, one, it it was kind of a ribbon ability. It wasn't a super powerful one, and it wasn't necessarily iconic for all rogues. It was just iconic to a rogue. Yeah, and it also allowed the party to have that capability. So it made Bahar or Angelo feel better about not having that ability. Right. At least someone's got it. That's good. And also, he didn't pick Spy Master or Master Inquisitive, right? If he had gone either of those other routes, then the abilities that I gave you would have been slightly different so that they didn't overlap. Right. But since he was moving in like a spellcaster prophecy direction, that was totally open for you to have. Yeah, I had the better charisma anyway. It's handy <laughs> for spying. It's true. After that, you want to determine the power level of the entire Epic Destiny package that you're putting together. You don't need to be very specific about this at this point. Just sort of get a feeling for exactly how much mechanical power you want to be giving each of your players with these additional abilities. You know, you don't want to overshadow the sum total of their normal abilities, but you do want to give them enough of like a boost or an oomph so that they really feel like oh, okay, I am a demigod. Look at the things I can do because I am a demigod. Yeah. And then I think the best thing you can do is make the first one. Yeah, just one. (laughs) Yeah, do one and then use that to gauge the rest off of. Mm -hmm. Try and keep things in line with that one. 
Right, like we said before, you want to balance the power across them. So if you've got one, you just make everyone else similar to that one. And it's likely that there's at least one of your players or one of these ideas for the Epic Destinies that really stuck out, that like is super obvious. And like that is one that you have a bunch of ideas for, and that's one that the player's really excited about. That's the one that's probably going to be easiest to build. So just do that one first. Yeah, like Gold Dragon. Yeah, that's exactly what I did. Oh, he's going to be a gold dragon. going to turn into a half dragon. This is really easy. He's going to have immunity to fire. He's going to breathe some fire. He's going to fly around and get some wings. Yeah. Nope. Super easy. <laughs> I had spent the past like six levels building my spy network. Well, well, remember, I started planning out Epic Destinies when you guys were like level eight. Yeah, good point. <laughs> now we'll walk you through how to build this first Epic Destiny. At first, you want to determine the number of levels or steps that you're going to spread these abilities over. You know, how staggered are they going to be? Like, for example, in Morning Glory, it was level 17, 18, 19, and 20. So I had four opportunities to offer abilities, which means I needed at least four abilities. So there's only really three required elements. The first one is the gateway. The very first ability that a character gets from their epic destiny. It should be strongly flavorful and change or mark the character in some way that signifies, hey, I have this epic destiny now. But it doesn't need to be all that powerful. It, it certainly can be, though. So, for example, Emery's at level 17, the first level that she got an epic destiny ability, Fiendslayer got the ability Gaze into the Abyss. You can see normally in darkness, both magical and non-magical, and you can see invisible creatures, and you can't be frightened. Suddenly at that level, she is someone who can walk into the darkness and she doesn't need to be afraid of what's there, which is something that no other character can say. Then you want an iconic ability. And this is the thing your destiny is named after. Yeah. This should be sort of an at-will power or like a permanent effect, just something that's the penultimate ability that when you gain it, you will use it regularly, right? It, it marks you as your destiny. Yeah, at level 18, the Sword Saint got, even God will be cut. You bypass the damage resistances of any creature. It wasn't a thing he had to remember. It's just, he has a sword, and when he cuts you, you bleed, period. What was my iconic ability? Yours was... Uh, was the Radiant to Flame? No, that was the, the intro ability. Oh. And that was me fixing you. Yeah. <laughs> it was master of the game. Choose four skill or tool proficiencies. And when you make an ability check that uses one of those, you can't roll lower than a 10. Oh, reliable talent. Yeah, basically. But for four things instead of two. Yeah, exactly. And then you're going to need a capstone. Mm -hmm. And just like we talk about at level 20, you want that defining ability, right? This is the same thing. It's going to be mechanically powerful. It's going to really mark your character and it's going to be something that no one else has yeah if an npc sees the character use this ability it should basically tell them everything they need to know about who they are and what they do so for example the warforged dreadnought got perfect defense when you take damage from any source you can reduce it to zero and it recharges on a short rest if the warforged dreadnought gets hit with a nuclear bomb once per hour, they can ignore it. It just absorbs that damage. Yeah, nope. <laughs> I mean, everyone else dies. Right. No one's around to see that one, to right, know that right. it's a Warforged Dreadnought. <laughs> but he knows. He knows. I think in the final battle, he was saying, you know, uh, I'm pretty sure the universe can be destroyed, but I'll be okay. Right. <laughs> <laughs> After that, go ahead and add those ribbon abilities that you've jotted down or that you're just coming up with to fill out any shortcomings or add some extra flavor or just smooth out the ability progression you know you don't want huge discrepancies in what you get at one level versus what you get at another level so for example for brand's grand confessor one of the first abilities you got was argent channeler it let you convert fire damage to radiant or vice versa that's not a super powerful ability but it's one you absolutely needed because you knew and i knew that you were facing fire immune fiends yeah, and mm. I was a gold dragon right. sorcerer, meaning <laughs> I was all fire-based. And it was a thing that you, you hadn't really complained about earlier, but you said, huh, this is going to be tough. I kind of need to do something about this, don't I? Right, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to learn crossbows. Right. <laughs> After this, you kind of get into the nitty-gritty. You assign values, like numerical values, to each of the abilities that you've written down and then add them up. Just 
when you're assigning the values, you want to keep in mind how powerful it is. Is it a trait, something that's always on, or do they have to activate it and then wait for it to recharge? How often can they use it? And really, how useful is it? Yeah, you just want to kind of stack rank these things so that you're keeping everything roughly aligned. Right. So the general point system that I was using is if you got a skill, like a skill proficiency, that was worth one point. If you got advantage on a particular kind of skill check or you got proficiency in certain circumstances, I gave you half a point. Five points was a really useful at will that you can use anytime or a really strong power that you could use like once per combat or something that you could use only once a day, but might change the entire face of a combat. Those were all worth right around five points. And then there were a few outliers that were very, very strong, but they were iconic enough that I didn't want to like break them apart into smaller pieces. And those I just sort of eyeballed. So like Construct Apotheosis from the Warforged Dreadnought basically gave the Warforged a permanent and large self and then, you know, a bunch of extra hit points and things like that. And that was definitely worth more than five points because it was always on, but I didn't want to like break it up. <laughs> So add them up and then, you know, tweak from there. Rearrange those abilities, increase or decrease the amount of power of an ability or how often it recharges, broaden or narrow the effect, uh, add or remove those ribbon abilities until you get something that feels like it has the right amount of power and that probably is worth around the same point value at each of your levels or steps. And then once you feel like you've got it balanced, you get to do my favorite part, which is add all the flavor. You get to come up with cool and pithy names for your abilities or write out the descriptive text that explains why you have this ability. Mm -hmm. You can dig through DeviantArt and find cool images. Yeah. <laughs> and steal them. And steal them. <laughs> and now you're left with a single number, a point value for how much all of the abilities are worth in aggregate in this epic destiny. It doesn't really matter what that number is. Uh, the Epic Destinies that I built in Morning Glory were all worth between 23 and 24 points. That doesn't mean anything. But when I built the other Epic Destinies, they just needed to be between 23 and 24 points in total. That way I knew they all matched up. Yeah, assuming you accurately gauge the power of each individual ability. <laughs> well, a lot of the abilities that I was giving were things that were available from a particular class. So you can see, all right, this class gets it at level four. This class also gets it at level four. All right, maybe those are about on par. Right. But yeah, there's definitely some guesswork in there. And I mean, there's an easy way to check this, right? When you run the game, you want the characters to feel powerful, right? That you want this to make an impact. So start with a normal encounter, mm -hmm. the type of encounter you would throw at a 17th level party unadjusted and just see what happens and if they wipe it very quickly you know that they're pretty powerful right they probably feel like they are really coming into their destiny and now you know hey i need to ramp up the difficulty here i've made them pretty strong yeah and it allows them to just kind of ease into these new abilities it's also nice if you from here on, occasionally include obstacles that can only really be overcome or can be best overcome by using those epic destiny abilities because it makes them feel like, oh man, if I hadn't done, if I hadn't picked this, if I hadn't like embraced this destiny, we might not have been able to overcome this obstacle. Yeah. Even though, <laughs> though you did that for me with the use magic device. <laughs> and I, not only did I totally whiff on realizing that I could use it. But then I was just like, you know, I didn't expect to ever need that. And I still don't care. I'm just happy that I have it in my back pocket. <laughs> just in case. Just in case. For the epilogue. Right. Yeah, for I, the rest of Bran's life. In case one of you dies and I need your legendary item. Yeah. <laughs> well, certainly the basically ribbon ability of the Fiend Slayer being able to make a creature that she kills release a soul that it owns came in useful later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but was worth basically zero points. Right. <laughs> so are we going to be able to publish these? Uh, yes, everything except for the art that I stole from DeviantArt. Oh, right. We'll have to scrub the art. Yeah. But uh, we will link these in the show notes. Though, you know, of course, keep in mind, these were tailored for our characters in our campaign. Oh, yeah, these dear Lord. Mm -hmm. will not fit into your characters in your campaign necessarily smoothly or even at all. Yeah, they might break your campaign, whereas, like, abilities that some of these characters had didn't do anything in the morning glory campaign right <laughs> use magic device 
Uh, do you hear that, Ishan? I think that's the sound of an extra soul heading up into Mount Celestia. Well, if souls are moving, then it's time to move on to the Character Creation Forge. But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane, at Mundangerous, that's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan, at Evil Sense Carne, that's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show, at TPTCast. You can also email us if you can't fit it into 140 characters at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrillCast.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Total Party Thrill. All right, Ishan. I have to be honest, this is my least favorite of all of our Character Creation Forge builds thus far. Oh, yeah? Is it just because it is the Psychic Warrior? Come on, you knew this. <laughs> Shane hates psionics. I hate psionics. I don't know why they exist. But I you love Dark Sun. I do, but we don't have psionics, and it's great. <laughs> yep, psionics are stupid for babies. I'm going to make your head explode. Yeah, that I deserve it. So the Psychic Warrior is the terrible garbage version of the Scion that was like melee and basically a fighter and had a terrible PowerPoint progression. But it was really cool because you had a sword and you could use your mind to make it better and make yourself better in combat. It kind of turned into the battle mind in 4th edition. Okay, I can get behind that. It was also wisdom based it was a wisdom based caster which is a little difficult to do in fifth edition because wisdom based casters are not great not usually that great in melee yeah i mean there are a ton of arcane charisma based and intelligence based like duelists yeah you pretty much have your close combat clerics and then druid you can't multi-class very easily so right so we're doing a lot of reflavoring as we tend to do with psionics right (laughs) because you may have noticed Those don't exist in 5e either. That's right. And then mechanically speaking, one of the cool things about psionics is that there aren't any components. No material components, no magic spells. You don't have to pull back one out of your bag. Right. It just happens because, like, your brain is awesome. Yeah. Which is why the build is Battlemaster Fighter 12, War Cleric 8. Because you're going to get those martial maneuvers from Battlemaster that are really combat-focused, but you can totally reflavor as things that you're doing with your mind yep menacing attack you're scaring someone well no you're basically casting frighten with your brain yeah i like that and war cleric is of course a solid splash for any melee character yeah exactly you get a bonus action attack wisdom mod times per day you've got a channel divinity that gives you a plus 10 to attack and eventually you're going to get uh, divine strike for an extra d8 radiant on each of your attacks and you're going to have three of those attacks from fighter 11 yeah, you also get cool domain spells. Shield of Faith is helpful. Magic Weapon, Crusader's Mantle. Right, and you've got that self-healing, which the Psychic Warrior also had. Yeah, this is definitely one where you want to talk to your GM and get your GM on board so that you can just ignore all of the requirements for that War Cleric and really play it as Psionics. Yeah, like a Psionicist who also is devout. Yeah, eh. no, it's eh. Boring. Right. The only god you believe in is yourself yeah that'll go well in the forgotten realms (laughs) oh wall of the faithless right (laughs) so what's your backstory for your psychic warrior one of the reasons that i do like psionics is that the power comes from within it's one of the few things in DD where you don't need to be a supplicant to some higher power so i feel like someone who is very focused on cultivating the power that flows from within is self-reliant and they're probably self-reliant because they had to be which means they didn't have a great upbringing i'm thinking escaped slave turned gladiator who uses their martial prowess in the pit and i think they probably don't necessarily understand what it is that they're doing right they don't need components they don't need to cast spells they see other people doing that and they know well i'm not doing that they just think man i hit hard man i'm accurate i heal really quickly you know i'm great at this so i think i would probably pick a spell selection that enhances specifically like your own melee combat abilities and that heals yourself but i wouldn't take anything like commander strike 
the martial maneuver that you know lets someone else take an action or like the bless spell yeah exactly yeah. you know i might take crusader's mantle because it affects yourself and it might be interesting to be like oh why is everyone else doing like an extra d4 radiant damage man <laughs> i am good at this <laughs> what about you shane uh pass no nerd shit. <laughs> <laughs> i don't know man my psychic warrior was trained at a monastery or something for psychic monks i hate this <laughs> get zarai yeah let's go with that yeah okay. he was he was mind muddled by descendants of illithids and now he's got psychic abilities and he's really not happy about it neither am i moving on it's gonna go kill mind flayers done yeah and i mean he will not be subject to mind flayers because he has that strong wisdom so okay mind flayer hunter there you go perfect i, I did it are you happy now <laughs> yes but i think maybe you just cast charm person with your brain that's what happened if you want to support the show the easiest way to do that is to leave us a five-star review on itunes and if you're willing to help us out we'll read your five-star review on the air you can also find us on stitcher it's like a pandora for podcasts if you like or favorite us there the algorithm will help other people find us and ishan i believe we have a review for you to read an exceptional podcast for dms and players five stars by edgar schmidt I had this podcast on my queue for a while, and wow, I haven't stopped listening since I started. I began on episode 10, and right now I'm about to start the most recent number, 53, and it is so good that I haven't listened to anyone else for the past couple of months. Highlights. The production of the podcast is really good. The voice quality is crisp and clear. The campaign, Morning Glory, is very inspiring. I ended up buying three Eberron books as a result of their tales. The character creation forge is excellent. Your brain will be overfilled with ideas, not only for your characters, but maybe a few villains. I can't recommend it enough. 10,000 stars. That's a new record. Yeah. I'm also super happy that someone is buying Aberon books. Uh, yeah, I know. That's the best part. I want to send this review to Wizards of the Coast and be like, hey, look. Let's do this. This is a thing. Let's get 5e mm-hmm. Eberron. But let's send it to Keith also. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> look, did we do a good job? Right. <laughs> Please approve of us. <laughs> We're desperate for your approval. Not really. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We're actually talking about Dark Sun and a bunch more psionics. And in the character creation forge? We're building the Wasteland Wanderer. Well, that's it for episode 65 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we've lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.